Hello, and welcome back to Psychology and You. I'm your host, Teresa Griesbach, and today we're going to be talking about motivation and the internet. Before we dive into the specific implications of the internet and motivation, I want to give you all a brief overview of just general motivational concepts in psychology. In a 2013 study from Kim, Motivation is dissected into three processes, which include the process of generating motivation, the process of maintaining motivation, and the process of regulating motivation. So generating motivation involves the identification of a reward or something that is predicted to produce a positive feeling or state within an individual. This can vary in terms of salience. So some rewards are predicted to elicit a really positive response and outcome, whereas some are less so. It's more tepid. Um, and that's kind of this idea of salience. Next, we have maintenance of motivation, and this involves associative learning, so pairing a behavior and tethering that goal-directed behavior to the reward, and also positive reward prediction error. Positive reward prediction error occurs when the outcome of an expected reward is more positive than expected. And what this does is it prompts the strengthening of neural connections, which would maintain that motivation and thereby uh, increase the likelihood that that person is going to engage in that behavior again and identify that reward as a very high value reward. Next, we have regulation of motivation. And this is kind of the opposite of maintaining motivation since it involves negative reward prediction error. And this occurs when the outcome is less beneficial than predicted and thereby those neural connections become weaker. And so the behavior is less likely to be maintained. Next, I wanna discuss Hewitt's 2011 motivation overview. Um, he defines motivation as an internal state or condition that activates behavior and gives it direction. Additionally, he identifies seven subcategories of motivation. So the first one is stimulus response. Then we have social, biological, cognitive, affective, cognitive, and spiritual motivations. For the purposes of this podcast, I'm mainly going to be discussing the social motivations, which, involve, which involves this desire to either achieve or maintain social affiliation, social acceptance, or social belonging. Additionally, we might discuss the biological, cognitive, and affective motivations, uh, but less so. Next, I want to discuss uses in gratification theory. 
While this theory is quite old, and originally it was used to discuss media in a more traditional sense, which you know might include newspapers or television or even radio, many social scientists today have adapted it and applied it to these new media contexts, which includes the internet and social media and texting and all of that great stuff. So the theory claims that media consumers are actively engaging with the material rather than being a passive sponge who just absorbs everything based on the individual's unique motivations and needs. They will choose to attend to elements of media more heavily or even identify with elements more so uh, due to their unique needs and motivations. So as I mentioned previously, uses and gratification research has been applied to more modern mediums, including phones or text messaging and social media and just general internet uses. According to Wikipedia, some uses for mobile phones have been identified which include the need for affection or sociability, the need for entertainment, for psychological reassurance, for status, for relaxation, escape, or for information seeking, and finally, coordination for business. Additionally, researchers make the distinction between motivations to contribute versus retrieve information on the internet. So in terms of contribution, some uses may be a need for just, again, entertainment. It's easily accessible and a way to pass time. For retrieval, it's highly efficient and there's quite a bit of high quality information uh, available on the internet. Whiting and Williams' 2013 article identify a few more uses for social media. These include social, a need for social interaction, information seeking, again, entertainment as the same use for just mobile phones, a need for relaxation, communicatory utility, convenience utility, a need for expressing one's opinion, a need for information sharing, and a need for surveillance or obtaining knowledge about others. So going back to Hewitt's article about those categories of motivation, I'm consistently seeing a lot of social motivations in these identified uses. And to me, that's not surprising since we're social beings and social connection and intimacy and just relatedness is a very important need which can be satisfied through the internet. I'm also seeing a lot of effective uses. Um, the need for entertainment or relaxation for one. The process of engaging with this media is an effort to make yourself feel better, to no longer be bored, 
for entertainment purposes or to de-stress in terms of relaxation. So these are effective needs that people are satisfying through the internet and social media. Lastly, I'm seeing some cognitive needs as well, particularly in the desire to express one's opinion, share information, or obtain knowledge or surveilling others. These are all indicators of curiosity or wanting to obtain information through these digital mediums. In particular, I find the need for expressing one's opinion, the need for information sharing and surveillance to be really interesting. And I think it might be a more unique use or gratification that's been identified in relation to social media. And the reason I'm saying this is because we have never been able to express our opinion or share information more efficiently. Um, it's super easy to just share a link, share an article, also to just post your thoughts. And also this is more rewarding to, I'm guessing a lot of people since this sharing reaches a lot more people than we've been able to in the past. I mean, instead of just talking to a few people about your opinion, like let's say your mom, you can now post it on your Facebook or Twitter or I don't know, Instagram, and it could reach potentially hundreds of people. So these are all very interesting things to, to consider. Additionally, I believe that our need for surveillance is being more satisfied by social media and the internet since we're able to keep tabs on people a lot more easy now. Since most people have some sort of social media page where they will po make posts or update images and we can sort of survey them. And this is probably more rewarding than the sort of surveying people used to do before these mediums were available. It's also interesting to consider intrinsic versus extrinsic motivations or uses of the internet. As I mentioned before, the internet is an extremely useful way to access information and resources. And a lot of workplaces and even within schools the internet is commonplace. So one motivation for internet use is probably extrinsic in that people want to be good students or good workers and they see the increased productivity and time savings or efficiency that's associated with the internet. So that utility of it draws them into using it and the increased performance is attractive to them. On the other hand, people enjoy the internet for purposes of, you know, curiosity and just exploring the, the web. Zeo et al. claims that this intrinsic form of internet use, which involves this curiosity and enjoyment, 
can lead to this flow state. And I'm sure you all have heard of this before. Um, it, it involves being challenged to a degree, but also you're very much enjoying the activity that you're doing. So both perceived autonomy and perceived competence in terms of using the internet are believed to increase one's intrinsic motivation for internet use. To me, this shows the importance of developing computer skills and literacy since people are going to feel more competent at using the internet and therefore are going to enjoy the experience more when they do have to use it for, you know, school and work. And therefore the extrinsic and intrinsic uses of the internet can be more balanced. Especially since Teo et al. found that extrinsic factors or motivations like school and work posed more of an impact on internet use across multiple dimensions, including frequency of internet usage, daily internet usage, and diversity of internet usage. Now I want to circle back to the uses and gratification theory a bit, particularly how I talked about media consumers being active participants rather than passive, and how they choose what they want to engage with or adopt or identify depending on certain individual factors. These individual factors might be reliant on previous experience, which could, you know, designate through that learning um, what is rewarding to that person and how rewarding is it. So this is going to determine how they interact with certain media. I thought that this was important to revisit since this article from Maryland Smith Research um, examined how people adopted goals over social media and also how social norms played a role in this goal adoption. So the researchers found that people with a high degree of social connectivity particularly those with high followers and um, that were also not following that many people, were most susceptible to social norms. They found that this group was more likely to adopt the goal, but less likely to attain it in comparison to people who were less socially connected on social media. And the researchers hypothesized that this vulnerability in this highly socially connected group might have something to do with a need for impression management. So this is a good example of how individual differences can alter the way people interact with media and how motivated they are to interact. And also how intrinsic and extrinsic motivation can apply to social media as well. In the group that was vulnerable to social messaging or social norms, um, as I had mentioned previously, they adopted the goal at a higher rate, but um, attained it at a lower rate. 
and likely this shows some degree of an extrinsic motivation rather than intrinsic as they didn't adhere to the goal as strongly. Now I want to talk a bit about the concerns relating to internet addiction and how motivation and the internet could be considered in a more pathological sense. This is kind of a controversial topic and people aren't sure if internet addiction is a true thing. Um, so it's kind of a mixed bag. Setting aside this controversy for a bit, looking at people who were said to have had an internet addiction can provide some insight into their, their state and possibly their motivations for internet use at a very aberrant level. Juan et al. believes that problematic internet use arises when people's psychological basic needs aren't being met. And he cites self-determination theory, which states that we all have basic needs for autonomy, competency, and relatedness. People who do not have these basic psychological needs met and are in a state of distress are more vulnerable to problematic internet use since they are using it as a mechanism to cope with or satisfy the needs that are not being met. From this perspective, problematic internet use is sort of a secondary issue and what really needs to happen is that the person learns how to adaptively cope with the psychological distress that they're experiencing. Knowing about this vulnerability, practitioners can be aware and intervene earlier if someone is starting to show signs of an internet addiction, and then they can go upstream and target the issues that are fueling this behavior. So to finish up this podcast, I would like to discuss internet motivations in a more positive light or from a more positive perspective. First, I want to cover altruistic behaviors or the possibility of altruistic behaviors. And then I want to discuss this use of the internet for self-disclosure purposes. According to Klesanen, altruism exists in spaces on the internet. For instance, a lot of the mental health and psychological wellness boards are filled with examples of altruism, but he also mentions that they can be filled with aggression and judgment as well. So that space is a little bit of a mixed bag. On the other hand, there are different examples, such as a lot of the advocacy we see um, in terms of people sharing videos or links, articles, just information in general in support of various causes. Also, there are ways for people to donate to various causes over the internet, and even this really simple um, online community, which gave me a chuckle. 
called caretoo.com, which involves users intentionally visiting the site every day. Um, and they employed this click to donate model where through clicking a link, they are able to support various causes like green living and children in need of food and shelter. And they don't have to pay anything or they can just, you know, clicking is very low effort. And yet this is still a very tiny expression of altruism on the internet. And there are so many more. Well, the concept of altruism in itself has a fair amount of, you know, opposing sides in it. I think it's worth mentioning that there are some visible behaviors that people partake in on the internet that that do show a desire for altruism. So lastly, I want to talk about self-disclosure over the internet, specifically on online communities that are supportive and facilitative of self-disclosure. According to Luo and Hancock, Self-disclosure generally induces a very positive feeling for people and it has positive impacts on their well-being because generally people perceive a sense of connectedness, social support, and authenticity coming from each other. So self-disclosure over the internet may be facilitated by anonymity and particularly visual anonymity. According to Joinson, participants in a study who experienced a visually anonymous conversation with people disclosed far more information than those who experienced a non-visually anonymous conversation. This may provide us with some insight into why self-disclosure over the internet occurs and why it is attractive to people. As we discussed earlier, self-disclosure is generally a positive experience. So it's, it has a high payoff for people, but also doing it over the internet carries less of a risk than doing it in person. Additionally, people may not feel that they have access to understanding ears in their, their circles in person, and they're able to access people online or communities that will be receptive and supportive to them, and thereby through the internet they can have this need met. So I want to end this episode by answering the question, how is the internet changing the way we are motivated. I don't think it's changing the way we are motivated per se, rather than it is providing new ways or mechanisms for us to satisfy various needs. So as we discussed those social, cognitive, affective or emotional needs, etc. And also if you're around my age, you've probably grown up with the internet and have had ample experiences with it. 
So from that, I'd say it's safe to assume that we've developed uh, an understanding or a prediction of what is rewarding to us or what internet uses are rewarding and what sort of uses satisfy those various needs of ours. From this learning and those prediction errors that we had discussed earlier, I think that we're more likely to engage in various internet behaviors um, just due to the frequency of experiences that we've had with the internet. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. And also there will be a list of references down below. Thank you all. And I hope you return for next week's episode.